Hello and welcome to the Game Dev London podcast, a community of amazing people who love talking about and sharing the details about their love behind making games, whether or not they're actually based in London. I'm your host, Oscar Clark, he, him pronouns, and I'm on a quest to understand everything you wanted to know about game dev, but never dared to ask. Today, I am delighted to be joined by uh, Pete Goodwin. I am uh, going to bring him on screen now. Pete, Hi. great to meet you. Um, just for the uh, audience, can I get you to tell people who you are and what you do? I'm Pete Goodwin. I'm a software engineer. I currently work for Cloud Imperium Games. I'm a tools developer. Um, basically bits and pieces that uh, help designers, whatever, get content into games. And uh, we had um, one of the other Cloud Appearing guys, a guy who was working on uh, Environment Art QA the other day. Um, uh, this isn't a particular thing for Cloud Appearing, it's just that you guys happened to be interested in chatting with me, which is delightful. I loved it when you reached out to me because I so rarely talk about the the, the, the meaty, you know, um, deep, dark pits of the coding world which i think are so important um and in particular because i'm not a coder i'm someone who's spent his career telling coders what to do <laughs> rightly or wrongly um and you i'm sure i, I can tell by that giggle that uh, there were, you've, you've been there you know exactly what i mean by the the whys and wherefores of that so let's have, talk a little bit because i understand that you spent some time as a game dev then you left and you came back to be a game dev again. So tell me a little bit about that journey. So, you know, what was it that made you want to make games in the first place? Um, it was joining a small British company called Sensora, um, an audio company. They were specializing in 3D positional audio. Oh, um, when was this? Oh, 1990s, 95. Oh, um, wow. That's really super early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the days of sound cards, and uh, they said, we've got two projects for you that you could do, an MP3 player or a device driver. And I said, oh, I'll have a go at the device driver, thinking I've done this before. Yeah. No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> very different, very unusual. It was a Windows yeah. device driver, and mm. uh, I had to learn from scratch. <laughs> Which is always it does take me back a bit. Back in 2000, I was actually, I left games for like a brief moment. I say left. I didn't really ever leave games, but um, I was working for Real Networks. So we were doing a lot of that audio stuff, hmm. streaming media, that kind of thing. Uh, and it, it, I find it really fascinating because you're right. It reminds me just what a different world we were in. Hmm. You know, we weren't walking around with smartphones. No. We weren't hmm. walking around with you know, integrated devices that would play, you know, 3D glory. Well, arguably nice, some nice 3D, but not really the level of experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I found that fascinating. So you're working on device drivers. And I, I suppose, you know, how those device drivers are going to be used? Was it exclusively around games or was it intended to be wider than that? It was supposed to be for anything, but mm. basically it was pretty much games. Um, yeah. It was direct sound, so um, it, um, we would get um, pre-release games from various different games companies or yeah. sound cards from different uh, hardware manufacturers, and we'd try them out and see what happened and see if it worked. Um, I had a few trips to the States and so on to go and see companies that wanted our software on their sound cards and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And it was just a lot of fun. We'd play games at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. That's what it we was, do. 
Unreal Tournament and Quake. I remember we played I, so much of. Yes. Oh my goodness, I remember. So back in that era, I was running a game service called Wireplay, and uh, Unreal Tournament and Quake, uh, Quake Two in particular, mm. were just. And actually, I remember if it was my very first day in games, we, there was an event called Quake Delica run by a guy called James K, who ended up reporting to me back in the day. It is now just like a super guy, great guy who runs his own PR company with another friend of ours. Um, you know, those guys are already, but um, it was, we were watching a guy called, Th or a guy whose user tag was Thresh. Uh, anyone who knows about the history of uh, Quake and Doom, uh, Thresh basically famously beat um, uh, John Carmack and got his Ferrari. Um, <laughs> and we hired him brought him over so we were bt british telecom running this wi-fi service we hired thresh to come over and play the quaker delica champion and the way he won which is why i'm making the story is because of the positional audio in the game so you might be responsible for this where the um the uk player who had won the tournament from all of the, the regions um we sat in the Ministry of Sound, and again, we're probably old enough to remember that location. Mm, yeah, uh, on a on a boxing uh, ring, and he was beaten. The British guy was beaten fifty-two to minus one, purely because Thresh could hear where the sound effect was and knew how to get there. Amazing stuff, absolutely amazing. So sound, even in those days, was actually really critical to some of the you know, particularly the earliest of the esports. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I see uh, when I um, when the job at uh, Sensora disappeared. I was there for twelve years. Um, oh, wow. We got we got bought out by Creative, and uh, yeah. they decided to shut us down because, well, uh, they were only interested in the IP, um, and my job sort of slowly evaporated. But just before I left, I started supporting OpenAL for Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty, and there was one company using it. That was Codemasters. Yeah, and there was a principal software engineer there who was using it, and I ended up supporting him for a year. And at the end of that time, I was looking for a new job and thinking, now what do I do? And someone said to me, "Why didn't you ask him?" Yeah. So I literally, I literally phoned him up and I said, um, "I'm an audio, audio person with a bit of knowledge of tools, more more about tools than I know about audio. Do you do you want someone like me?" And he said, "Yes, please. Um, I'll tell you who to apply to, and uh, we'll see if you can get you a job." And the next year, I know I got there for an interview, and I have a job. Fantastic! <laughs> so, so you're sat in Codemasters. I mean, I'm in Codemasters. Yeah, yeah. What what were you working on with that? Um, I worked for Central Technologies, so it yeah. wasn't actually a game, but um, we the audio we were doing was being used by Dirt Grid, and yeah. eventually F1 2011, yeah. and um, I, I don't the military sim they had they weren't using it; they were using FMOD. Um, yeah. But my name appears on um, Colin McRae Rally. Oh yeah, um, and so you know, I, I got if you get if you get the old um, DVDs, you can find the sort of leaflets and so on. You'll see in their Central Technologies, and there's my name popping up. I thought I love yeah, it cool. when we go back and find those things. Yeah. I mean, in my case, wherever I've been credited, someone's put an E on the end of my name. It's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and it's supposed to QA these things, but these, that's like. But okay, so let's talk a little bit. So you're you're sat there. So you've done this tools process. You've worked in audio, and and you talk about you know we didn't, I didn't work on a game, work, but actually, these central technology roles in these bigger studios are really pivotal. And you know we forget how much relies on that core functionality. 
I mean, what was it like being, you know, sat there in a, a, you know, amongst all these people who seem to be doing all sorts of crazy creative things, but you're doing essentially a job of work on a piece of code, or, or not necessarily a piece of code, but you know, on a on a yeah. on a, a very specialist area. Yeah. How does that frame the way that you come, you know, do your daily work and the way that you you think? It's much the same as working out of the games industry as it was for the tool side of it. Mm. Uh, but I actually did some runtime stuff, the engine side of it, and uh, that's what caught me out. Um, it's different. Uh, when I worked at Sensora, we did actually do a an audio library because mm. sound cards eventually dried up. Um, yes. And uh, I wrote a toolkit for game developers to use. It got yeah. sent out. We got a report back saying it's glitching like mad, and I thought, uh, "What?" <laughs> um, they had a uh, software engineer come in who knew about writing games development software. He rewrote it and fixed it all, and he showed me what I did wrong. Mm. Um, basically, what he explained to me was: it, games use a game loop. They sit there in a tight loop, um, thirty yeah. frames a second, sixty frames a second. And um, what was happening was I was allocating memory. Ah. <laughs> and not realizing this can take an instant or 30, 40, 50 milliseconds. Yeah. So glitch because it's messing up the game loop. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> I would not have known that. No, but no, how would you know? That's a classic yeah. thing, isn't it? How yeah. would you know? Because, yeah. you know, if you're, not, if you're not thinking about the way, I mean, some of it is about the way games are designed because of history. Some of it is mm. because of the practical needs. Mm. Quite often, I think historically, it's been because of we've had to squeeze every possible morsel out of the technology because yep. we've been constantly pushing the boundaries yep. to get the visual acuity, the, the audio quality, and so on and so forth. And so, I mean, it, I mean, do you think that people understand? I mean, is it still the case that we're having to squeeze this? I mean, if you're working on, you know, what I think you're working on, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in terms of the demands of the game. Are you still facing the same problems, like how to squeeze the best out of um, these limited resources? I don't know about what I'm the project I'm on now because yeah. I don't really see that side of it anymore. Um, but back at Codemasters, um, the Xbox 360 had six hardware threads. Yeah, of which numbers five and uh, four and five were audio um, dedicated. Yeah, and I remember the AI team decided to surreptitiously slip their library onto thread four. <laughs> at which point the audio went, what? <laughs> 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 and we had to go. Who's in charge of that? <laughs> you can't do that. You, these no. two threads, you kind of have to leave them alone a bit because. The audio will, will suffer if you try and do that. <laughs> but doesn't that really kind of highlight the fact that these teams who are dealing with different kind of workflows, they're dealing with different kind of uh, targets and impacts, they have to communicate. Yes. Um, I mean, so, so my role as a kind of product owner has been generally to try and work out what's the overall objective, what's the strategy, and how, how do these pieces together. But I wouldn't know that the audio ch channel is dedicated. Hmm that people who should know are people like yourself and do you how do you get heard in when you've got so many things going on how does that get how does that get propagated up to the appropriate it's, decision makers 
you need somebody who's got the clout to go in and say you can't do that uh, at a certain level um it wasn't me it was uh, the guy i worked for but um he knew a lot more about it than i did he, he was one of these people that was very very good at spotting problems mm. i don't know how he did it he, it looked like he was doing magic all the time i couldn't believe it <laughs> he'd walk yeah, in look at this issue and go oh it's this and he'd sit there thinking how the hell did you work that out <laughs> yeah, I, I know that uh, problem. I'm normally the person who goes in and uh, tries playing it, and that breaks it, uh, rather than the person who knows how to fix it. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I mean, uh, so do you think this is a uh, kind of is it a specific skill set? This idea of you know, working out where the problems are and, and, and up. I think so. Yeah. Or, or is it more of a, a mindset? Because I think there's a difference between skill set and mindset in the sense that skill set you can learn mindset is an attitude and often that's down to authority that you're given as well as authority you take if that makes yeah, sense. yeah confidence i guess yeah um having said that i have done this myself i've, yeah. I've sort of gone in and looked at something and said oh it's this and the guy yeah. sitting next to me says how did you know that and i'm sitting there thinking because it's experience it's knowledge yeah. and all those factors coming into play hmm. so I, I was on the other side that time and it was interesting experiencing that because I would never have realized then what it was. And I, I remember thinking it is just what you know and how yeah. much you know. So, yeah. So, yeah. In some ways, being in the coding space, because we're dealing with, you know, um, structural approaches, the there are ambiguities, of course, mm. but the actual code itself has to follow through a kind of precise set of, yeah. of structures. But one of the things. When it doesn't. <laughs> Wow, yeah, supposed to. Supposed <laughs> to, yeah. I've got an example of that, but yeah. Oh yeah, well, go for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, where, where, where does it break down? Is where I'm kind of going with it. You know, is it yeah. that your challenge is problematic, or is it where some of that learned behaviour is leading you astray? Yeah, it's it's when I was doing the device drivers. Um, writing device driver code is very different. Um, mm. The thing that caught me out there was something called deferred procedure calls. Um, okay. When the device driver, uh, device itself says, here's an interrupt, I want you to do something with my data. And um, I wrote it um, such that it called this 3D library and did all the processing and then got out of it. Hmm. Not realizing that's not the way you do it. <laughs> because what I was doing, this is on Windows 95, so it shows you how old it is. The famously stable Windows 95. Yeah. <laughs> it works on Windows 95. Yeah. But you try running this on Windows 2000 with their, um, there's a device, uh, driver verifier. It fails because it says you can't do that. You're not allowed in an interrupt service routine to start doing processing because you're supposed to get in, do what it is with the registers, get out the way quick. Yes. You've got to be really fast. And I wasn't doing that. And I thought, okay, how do I fix this? And I came across deferred procedure calls. Hmm. And I thought, okay, fine. That means I call something. And at mm -hmm. some point in the future, the operating system will execute it. Right. The problem there is it doesn't say when and no. how long. It's un unknown. And, and audio is the sort of thing you'd expect to be consistent. And, yeah. uh, and yeah. music's. Um, when you want to do music, it has to be very, very tight milliseconds. Yes. Timing matters. <laughs> yes. And that, in fact, Microsoft's Windows Hardware Quality Labs for this device driver would fail it mm. if it went over 30 or 40 milliseconds. 
And I thought, right. well, I can't guarantee that. So how do I fix this? Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, I twiddled some numbers, magic numbers. We call them magic numbers because we no idea what they mean. I twiddled them. I remember just before we were about to send this out to a company, it wasn't working. It was failing. Yeah. And I twiddled the numbers, and suddenly it started working. And I thought, I cannot believe it. I've just changed some numbers. I don't know what they do, what, how they work, why they work, and it works now. And it's like, oh, I hate this. It's, it's magic. Yeah. <laughs> but there it is, works. I, but, but I think every coder who's listening to this will have experienced a moment like that, whether you're, a, you're C-sharp uh, in Unity doing some scripting or if you're kind of deep, hard, you know, uh, C++ kind of like looking at kind of some physics conundrum there'll be something where sometimes you you fix it and you can't quite place why yeah um talking about physics um i played yeah. around with physics in my spare time and uh, yeah i set up this table and i had a tabletop and four legs i fired it up and the whole thing exploded <laughs> i'm sitting there the tabletop is shot off into the into the sky and the legs are collapsing and i'm thinking what just happened? <laughs> it was because the table legs were sticking into the tabletop. Oh, because right. of and physics, it, it repels. Yeah. Of course, it goes at fantastically high speed because of the way that it works. And I thought, yeah. so I had to set a slight gap. So the tabletop literally dropped a bit. Yeah. You can't see it, but. <laughs> But, but we've again we've been there. This is the thing. It's like I think what you're describing to me, which I think for you know anyone who's making games in general, is there's so much that should be systematic, mm. but there's also so much that creatively you discover. Like for example, the the exploding table could be really interesting to be applied in another circumstance, and you just mm. discovered something that could itself become a game mechanic. Yeah, but you needed to fix it to make it work as a tabletop and the way you fixed it rather than finding a nice simple way oh it just works you actually had to compensate by making the tabletop drop yeah. initially when it spawns yeah and i, I, I don't understand why it was doing what it did hmm. yeah, i mean obviously you know you could potentially have made a model that had it all in one piece but it but this hmm. this physics things that always bother me um so again one of the things we had at playstation home was we were thinking, how could we have something where we could have a social item that you could use? So we thought, what if we made a brick? So you put the brick down, and then somebody can put a brick on top of the brick. Nice and easy. Except deterministic physics doesn't work the same for everybody. And we had no way, because of the tech that we had at the time, and blah, 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 to guarantee that if you put a brick on top of a brick, that you would then actually get the same thing in both scenes. And that was so frustrating. Even down to, you know, obviously you can do predictive stuff and you can, you know, you can do, you know, stuff that would allow you to get by, a bit like you making the tabletop drop. But it was, it, I found it so frustrating as a designer, as a, somebody who wants to create social experiences, when you discover, you rub up against not necessarily a bound in the technology, but a bound in the application of the technology. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I mean, have you had experiences like that? I mean, in terms of, I mean, obviously you're doing more, more focus around the audio stuff, but have you had experiences like that where you're just trying to find ways to solve a designer's problem or a game experience problem, uh, and you just struggle because the way the system was set up just didn't fit that? Yeah, I think certainly with tools, um, 
the way you design to the right tools is all um it's all windows type thing but yeah when tools start to get big and they become spaghetti code i suppose it's called um yes. it gets harder and harder to add things to it and i know some recent examples is i was trying to add um highlighting to something oh yeah yeah and would it work reliably no it was <laughs> Course, to track down why it was not working in certain situations it's like drives you nuts it's like logically this should work but reality no it's not it's that it's there's holes there's things that exceptions and you think why <laughs> and trying to track it down you, you feel like you're a detective yeah like a, a sherlock holmes of coding or something trying to figure all these things out um, but for inspiring game developers oh, for, actually for anyone who's interested isn't that the joy of being a coder yeah, Isn't when that... you find the answer and you go, yeah. that's it, I've got it. it it's a really great feeling. <laughs> uh, the other great feelings I've had, I remember, is um, I was told that the audio for... This was Grid. No, was it? Um, yes, it was Grid, I think. Mm. Um, it was going crazy when the car crashed into a wall. Okay. I thought, okay, fine. And then I thought, you want me to crash a car into a wall? Yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> so so I, I, I set the game up. I fired up the car and I rammed it straight into the wall, you know, ramming speed, Captain. Yes, indeed. Ramming speed. <laughs> and I looked at the audio and thought, yeah, I can see what the audio is doing. It's going nuts. It's it's eating up this, the game time, uh, the, the yeah. main thread. I thought, well, it's easy fix. You take that process, that function, you put it on another thread on the other, on the other thread. That's simple. But I had to crash the car a few times just to make sure. Just you've got to be sure. I, I, I'm going to go into this a bit more because one of the biggest issues that I we often have in effectively making sure that you get games up to a good standard, so a release standard, <clears> is <throat> the ability to re replicate issues. Oh so, boy! Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I have a big problem because most of the time I get involved, most of the QA has been done. When I encounter an issue, it's one of those things that happens only to me because I seem to make. Uh, technology upset by my existence and replicating it is a nightmare because i know yeah. it happened yeah. there it's happened yeah. and you whenever they tell you to do it it worked on my machine yeah <laughs> i mean yeah. how does that drive you mad that whole process i mean what have you learned any tricks i mean any kind of advice that you can help people avoid that pain or minimize that pain at least um I, I uh, remember I worked on Just Cause. Um, yes. The, uh, I think it's Swedish, I think. Um, I forget. I think it's Avalanche Studios, I can't remember. Yeah, Avalanche, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they sent us a copy of the game with uh, debug in it, so it ran at an awful frame rate. But they told us how to get to the point in the game by having sort of jump-in points and so on to get the problem. Um what they'd done was they'd taken our library for audio and they bolted it into our game and yeah. their game was multi-threaded, our library wasn't. So, of course, it was blowing up, crashing. And it yeah. was failing the Microsoft... Um, this is PC, so it would have been Microsoft's um, uh, testing that they did. And it yeah, was it's crashing, crashing after two hours. And I was wow. told, go and see if you can make our non-threaded library safer in threading I thought, oh this is going to be fun yeah <laughs> um, that doesn't sound like an easy thing to do 
pot kettle. I, oh, oh, sorry, square peg round hole type scenario. Exactly. Uh, I think I spent about a week or two, and I got it to eight hours instead of two. Okay. But I never solved the problem. I never actually fixed the problem. Uh, it was, you just made it last long enough to yeah, pass the test. it passed the test. <laughs> but as but you say, <laughs> you got to get to the point where the problem occurs because it was quite a long way into the game. But the other issue is you get to see the game again and again and again. And, again, and you get a bit tired of the music and the graphics. Yeah. No, I totally and get it. That's and what QA has to do, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's worse or easier for QA because that is the job you mm. play the game. And you, I think you kind of get to a sort of numb state. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know if that's fair, yeah. but I mean, I'll, I'll let uh, any QA folks out there who disagree with me, that's fine. I'm just trying to describe my, my personal experience when I happen to do QA. I can play a game ad nauseum because I have to. I think when I've got a different problem to solve, like, for example, I'm trying to work out how the game makes money. I'm trying to work out why the retention is not working. So I've got a different problem to solve. Hmm. Yeah, I find it that different problem to solve makes it harder to ignore the repetitive nature because I'm trying to find this thing that stands out, and I, if I'm constantly seeing the thing I'm expecting, it, it, I kind of uh, that kind of creates it. Is that the same kind of thing that's going on from a coder point of view? Yeah, I, I remember. Um trying to solve a problem and you this was a japanese game where you're playing this mech um sort of warrior type thing and yeah you're going and playing it over and over again and you start hearing that jingle over and over again <laughs> oh. after a while it gets a bit i don't want to hear this anymore <laughs> that's what the mute button's for <laughs> i know but then i'm but missing for audio, audio so, <laughs> yeah. so you can't it's like you've the worst curse ever yeah exactly <laughs> But it, like you say, it is. It's. I mean, I can't do. I, I. I decided a long time ago I couldn't be a coder because I just don't have the patience. So I do admire anyone who has the patience, because, like you say, the, the, I think the biggest thing about that I feel about coding about the the challenge of it is, it's not just the logic; it's tracking down where something is misplaced, particularly the semicolon or the comma or the whatever it is is out of order. Yeah, uh, that that um, syntax is is my is my art and, and being able to explain to somebody why they broke it. Um, when I first started with OpenAI yeah. for Xbox 360, um, the guy at Codemaster said to me, "It works, but only on one voice. It seems like every other voice is dead." Oh. I thought, okay, so I had a look, and I looked at this code, and I thought, "Oh, I see what's happening. There's a bit where it tries to move to the next voice." And it was written in C++, and I realized the code was doing nothing. The way it was written, it did nothing, literally. I pointed this out to the guy who wrote it, and he said, but that moves to the next pointer. I said, no, no, look at it closely. He went, oh. Oh. <laughs> I put in the code that make it work. Just one extra line of, you know, a little bit of code. Suddenly it all starts working. Yeah, they're kind of like, he didn't, he didn't have to do the Picard engage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, missed a bit. He effectively wrote a no-op, which is oh, but these happen. So you've you've done some you know fantastic stuff in terms of working with you know audio and working on drivers all the way up to kind of working with you know the tool sets that teams are using mm. in studios working on some big titles. Um you then leave games um yeah. 
what was it? Was it the fact that you could earn lots more money outside of games, or is it um, just opportunity, or just the timing? And you know, because I know that lots of projects in AAA's come to an end, and they don't always lead to you know, yeah, shrink and grow. I was working at uh, Leamington Spa, yeah, um, and I had a house in uh, London, and mm. I originally thought maybe I'll sell it and move buy a place in Leamington. But I didn't like that idea because my partner's in London and uh, there was no way they were going to move. <laughs> um, so I thought, okay, fine. They opened a studio in Guildford. Yes. And I thought, okay, can I sit in Guildford and work remotely? And they said, yes, yeah, it's fine. I'm thought, very cool. familiar with that story. Yeah. <laughs> the game that was being developed there was called Body Count. Yes. It flopped when it got released in 2011. Cost the company $15 million. Yeah. All 82 of us lost our jobs. Myself, when they shut the studio down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually yeah. walked past the office not long after it as well. It was a very kind of weird moment. <laughs> that I'm was surreal. I mean, yeah. they were inviting in recruiters to come and talk to us to get us new jobs. Yeah. Uh, other people inside the, the studio were trying to sell it to Sony, to Nintendo, to Microsoft some idea with some you know to, to try and get people's jobs but it yeah, didn't yeah. work out and other things weird things were going on like uh, we came back the next day after they told us this and our cards weren't working you know you couldn't get in the door because yeah. someone had changed it such the doors wouldn't open till nine o'clock and then they'd lock after five o'clock but <sighs> nobody bothered to tell the security guard so he let us in <laughs> we're all going it, it was a very surreal moment. I mean, and then I, I went back to Southam, yeah, and my card was not working at the main door in in ah. Leamington, and I had to call my boss and say, "You're going to have to come and collect me. My card is not working." <laughs> and I got into the office, and I felt like I had this sign across my chest, "Unclean or unwelcome" or something. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, a, it's a horrible feeling when that happens. I mean, I I remember I. I've been married on it multiple times and uh, and you know it's it's very rarely about the person it's more about the company context and uh, mm. in fact actually when I was married on London at Sony when they when they basically told me that PlayStation wasn't going to be on PlayStation 4 um I was actually delighted because I could I actually felt ready I was ready at that point to go out and try and make games myself and I ended up consulting but that that's another thing but for a lot of people it's quite a heartbreaking moment because you put so much effort and emotion into this and then when you suddenly get in that situation and things like the security pass doesn't work anymore and you haven't been necessarily given the right context it's quite a difficult thing to deal with isn't it yeah yeah um i was out of the industry then and uh, i tried to get back in but um i discovered that my audio skills weren't were missing a huge section Right. Um, there's this thing called DSP, Digital Signal yeah. Processing. Yes. I don't know anything about it. Uh, what they expect you to be able to do is write reverb engines and filters and so on, and I didn't know anything about it. Fair enough. So I went for interviews and got nowhere. And the other thing that made me nervous was crunch, because yeah. I'd heard about it and I thought, I don't really want to go somewhere where they're going to expect me to work ridiculously long hours. And one place, they actually told me up front, we expect you to, if you join us, we expect you to work Saturdays, Sundays, and so on. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, great. I, mean, I just think, so I have a long old view on, on crunch, which we probably have mentioned on the podcast many times. But basically, I'd describe it as, as um, failure by management. 
Yeah, I think that's that's correct. I mean, and, and instead of actually resolving the failure, they pass it on to uh, the people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally, we have a no crunch policy. Just you know, if you work extra time, you take the time off. There may be moments where we need some cover for something, but I don't have any expectation yeah. of a staff member to do it. It's up to yeah. them if they can do yeah. it. And you get that outside of the industry as well. You do get moments where, or, or maybe a week or two, where you've got to do a little bit of extra work. Um, but it's not normally that mad. But this bunch lot... are trying to integrate it into your contract. Yeah. Which I and it's the contract. To me, that's such a... I, I think it's unfair practices, personally, yeah. because... I'm going to be stronger than... I, I'd use stronger language than that, but I won't. I'll, I'll try and be polite for the podcast. Yeah, I didn't oh, get the job, so it didn't matter. But yeah, it's good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> oh, I mean, you should. I don't think people should take those jobs. Yeah, you know, but they do, and I don't yeah. get it. I don't get it. Um, I, think I was. They're... If they had said we'd like to invite you in, I might have said yes because I yeah. wanted to get back in, but it didn't happen. And I moved from different jobs uh, about every year or so. I'd moved to a different place. I, I was good enough to be able to do application development because I knew enough yeah. about it. Um, and then I settled at a CAD company. Oh, yeah. And there's some parallels there, but I think it'd be interesting to sort of look at exploring the differences. So you've worked in a game context, you're now in a CAD company, having done some application development as well. Yep. How does that change the way that you operate? It was um, very similar. Um, the other fun thing was um, two of the guys I was working with, there were four of us software engineers. Two of the guys were ex-games developers. Oh, really? Interesting. Both of them, I think, worked at Sony. Um, hmm. One of them was, I can't remember where the other place he worked, but um, the reason why they gave it up was they got families and um, they got burned by something happening at some point. Um, <clears throat> Couldn't when imagine I, that. <laughs> <laughs> when I announced I was leaving and going back to games, one of the guys said to me, it's in the blood. You know, <laughs> I thought... You want to be in games, but again, don't you? <laughs> it I, is I, that feeling. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I joke, and I, I, I'm sorry for people who've heard me say this too many times, but I genuinely think it's the case. The second worst thing in the world is making games. The worst thing is not making games. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the reason I say that, though, is because we know how complicated and difficult. And like you say, some of the historic culture, I've been very lucky that as a product owner, not the coder guy, it's it's my pro problem to work out what we can cut rather than to crunch. Mm. Um, you know, if you get my drift, it's like yeah. I'm trying to alleviate the crunch by removing functions or deferring functions to later dates. And yeah. I'm trying to work out what the package re resolved output is so that we can launch something that is going to get an audience. And, mm. and that's a different type of pressure when we're talking about being the guy who's got to deliver on the sprint that particular functional element it's not just about you it's about the consequence of that particular asset that particular function not being there therefore the artist is working on the you know that other element is not there the person who's doing the audio effects over there can't do their job the person who's creating the gameplay experience or the trailer function can't do theirs it's this clustering of of dependencies that I think makes crunch so damaging. Yeah, and I think you know when you're when you're sat in that, and you, I think you we become significantly less effective when quite often 
there's been a misplacing of expectation by some party whether it's with the audience whether it's with the um the the, the investors the publishers whatever it might be um and we often try to get uh, games out before they're fully baked mm. and how many times have we seen that fail yeah um i was told not to join the game studio at codemasters um, yeah and what i was told was they for nine months they crunch yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> that's not crunch. That's systematic failure to plan, and yeah, you can't I... crunch for nine months. So uh, it, this is maybe the joy. Sorry, I very big emotional views on this because I do live op stuff. If you do crunch and you're getting people who are not sleeping enough, they are working too hard. They're not taking a break. They are not refreshing their mind. Yeah, which means they are not being effective. Yeah. They're probably taking two, three, four times as long solving the same problem and introducing a third more problems along the yeah. way. I, I had this discussion with a lead um, developer uh, yeah. when the studio at Guildford was closing down, and he, he turned yeah. around and he said, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but what happens if you're a passionate developer and you love what you're doing and you really want to work hard? And I thought, I didn't have an answer for him at the time, and I remember thinking recently, then how long is it before you burn out? I think it's that absolutely without question. Yeah. I think that's absolutely. I'd add to that as well. It's like I'd want to do my best work. So mm. why would I want to crunch? Yeah. And it just seems to be. Yeah. Make, you know. Yeah, it just seems to be there everywhere. Um, I don't know how much people have learned. There was this thing about EA Spouse. Um, oh yeah. Uh, when was that? 2016 or something? Can't remember mm. now. Uh, talking about the fact she never saw her husband because he's always busy, always crunching, always doing this. And I'm thinking, yeah. Um, I remember standing in the queue at uh, the canteen in Codemasters getting my lunch, and I heard this guy talking. He said he'd had one hour's sleep last night. That's not sleep. I didn't say that. I thought, <laughs> that doesn't... <laughs> How can you work with one hour's sleep? I mean... <laughs> you can't. You can't. Not not, not be effective. It's no. It's just... You know, as a one-off, when because yeah. I, I think we've all been, I think the passionate developers, the passionate people who want to make the things, know what it's like where I'm just going to get this done today. Yeah, and you know, you know, hopefully not four in the morning. I I've done that once, only once. Um, and uh, but you know, I've done I've done the work till midnight type thing a few times. Um, where. I've decided I need to get this thing out. And it was on me. It wasn't my management. I wanted to get that deadline met because yeah. it mattered. Um, and that is a completely different thing yeah. than when your team is up against a fake deadline. I say fake because we know how many times release dates shift. But a, 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 a self-imposed deadline that has been defined and agreed with a publisher we're now stuck with it we end up not being an old game that being said don't get me wrong i get also the other side of the fence which is i need to ship a game hmm. and i think the hard is, part yeah yeah the hard part though is deciding what again because set games are so subjective in terms of experience the really hard part is working out when is the point to say this is enough and hmm. um, you know I, I it's a again like i say Games are the uh, making games is the second worst thing in the world compared mm. to not making it. 
Uh, I started doing game jams in the last few yes. years. Um, and what I found was there's a lot of people who do game jams over a weekend. Yes. I think the famous one is Ludum Dare. Um, there's one famous one. There's also a global game jam, which yeah. we just finished. In fact, um, I was very um, grateful to my friend Alexi, who runs the global game jam in Ukraine. Uh, he asked me to judge the 83 games that they produced there. And the fact that there's amazingly talented people trying to make games in the middle of a war just amazes me, let yeah. alone doing yeah. it in crunch kind of mode, which is that 48-hour yeah. structure. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I, get, I went for the ones that would be over a month. I yeah, felt it was sense. more easier to do it. And I submitted a few entries, and I think I came in about midway up the sort of league of tape, I suppose. Um, yeah. Mostly at the bottom, but this one time <laughs> it was in the middle. Um, I can't say that I'm a, a great games developer because I don't have any great ideas, I don't think. It, I mean, everybody has loads of ideas, but actually oh, yeah. making something with them is different. Um, very much so. And what I've come up with is um, a game of asteroids with like variations oh, yeah. on it. Um, and it's a 2D game. It's, it's For me, it's not too hard to program. Um, yeah. And I did lots of variations of it. Um, and I discovered trying to write the AI for one game was like, whoa, this is fun. This is much more <laughs> I've ever done before. <laughs> How is this so hard to do? <laughs> <laughs> a robotic thing is like wow <laughs> yeah but again you know to me this is the difference so, so i am not a coder i can't actually do anything practical i can't draw i can barely write actually I, i'm not too bad a writer actually um but i can't code so i can't actually contribute that much to a game jam basically i'm great at the start because i'll give you the idea and i'll tell you how to structure it i'm great at the end because i'll tell you why it didn't work <laughs> but in the middle, I'm useless. Uh, I can make tea. That's basically it. Whereas I feel like what you're saying is like you're 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 my perfect opposite, which is actually you can do the thing. Yeah, but I don't have the I'm... idea. Yeah, I don't have the yeah. ideas and such. I'm not an artist. I'm I'm what's called a programmer artist, where it's everything's yes. very very basic and very crude. <laughs> but we don't have to be artists for game jams anymore. No. We can go to the Unity Asset Store. We can grab assets. Uh, hey, heaven forbid, we could use um, you know, um, some kind of art AI uh, to be able to create concept art to play with. Now, uh, don't be offended if you are an artist and you hate the AI art stuff. Don't worry. Uh, we're we're getting to the stage now where ChatGPT is making programmers redundant. Well, maybe not quite yet, but we're getting getting to the point where we can see some amazing stuff happening. So, I think you're, the point you're saying about game, game jams that's a really fascinating thing. So, let's go back to the history. So, you've code masters and, and Southampton before that. You've taken this time out to do app development, and now um, working on CAD. Now you're coming back into games. You've got the history, the legacy, but now yeah. you're 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 refreshing that kind of need state in you, but what are you what are you doing in that in that context? I mean, Cloudy Pyramid, we know what you're making, but um, for you, what's the role that is it is it more satisfying being back in games? Is it yes? You I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like doing tools. I've been doing tools yeah. for a long time now of different sorts, and I like doing that. But yeah. now I'm working on a game I actually like. Um, <laughs> racing games to me, well, I, I don't find them that interesting. I love the graphics. I mean, I yeah. remember when they explained what a god ray was, and I think shafts of light coming through the clouds. It's like, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was interested in what's called ray tracing from a long time ago, the idea yeah. of being able to generate a photorealistic picture. 
And in fact, the CAD company did that. They did ray tracing of um, kitchens, bedrooms, and bathrooms. You could generate an amazing high-quality picture of what your new kitchen could look like based on real models of everything. Love it. They have this humongous library of all these different things, and you could generate a picture of it. And now I've gone back into a game where we're in space and I get to play, uh, in my case, I play space tourist. I go and land on a planet and basically buzz around or something. Explore, exactly. Yeah, Explore. No, I, I, I'm with you. I've spent, I won't tell you how many hours I spent in No Man's Sky. <laughs> yes, I've played that as well. Yeah. Yeah, over 400 yeah. hours. <laughs> Not quite as much, but uh, <laughs> uh, I find I can play a game for two or three hours, but then my, my eyes start to go and so it's. Oh, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I. I just sit there and I, I love these ridiculous sandbox experiences, and I, I'm I'm sure that I will uh, enjoy the you know the, being a citizen, shall we say? Um, and but there is something about the um, I, interesting that kind of a relaxation of that. But anyway, that, that gets back to the plot. So, in terms of what do you think you has changed in terms of your experience of game making now, functionally, I mean, in terms of your day to day job. Are things easier? Are tools like you know machine learning and AI playing a part to what you're doing? Not that or I've seen. You... <laughs> no, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I would say I know more about it. Okay. Um, I didn't know a huge amount when I first started. And, uh, I tried to get hold of some sort of amateur game engines. Um, yeah. And play around with them, but I do remember back at Sensora. We went to France, um, Paris, France, to talk to French games developers to sell our yeah. library. Yeah. And we had a Havoc guy with us who showed oh, off yeah, the yeah. physics engine. And he had these beautiful demos. You, know, mm. you just fire up a demo, talk about it, talk about a feature. I thought, great. What do we have? Me talking about it. And I thought, this is not good. I went back to the office and I said, we really need a demo to show off all our audio stuff. Yeah. So we tried setting up a demo, and an artist did for us a beautiful castle. Great. Fire it all up, load it into PC, run it. Yep, you can wander around the castle. You walk up to a flaming um, thing, move your head around it. You can hear it moving as, you know, literally engaged. Yeah, it should. Yeah. yeah. Try doing this on the PS2. Too big. Won't fit. <laughs> <laughs> Too many polygons. Yep. <laughs> I didn't know anything about this, and I'm thinking, well, what do we do now? We, I looked at it, and I thought, yeah, I can see the problem. The artist has done it in high-res mode, and he's generated a gazillion polygons. Yeah, <laughs> long. Fix that. I, I, yeah, if you don't, this is to your point earlier. If yeah. you don't know how a game is coded, how would yeah. you know yeah. that polygon count matters? How would you know yeah. that the uh, resolution of images that you need level of detail variance? Uh, of course. Now we're in an era where we're starting to see where that's even that's becoming antiquated in terms yeah. of approach. Yeah. You know, um, you know, there do we need a level of detail if we've got a graphene or whatever the name of the Unreal tool is? I, I I'm not I'm not good at remembering the details, um, but to me that's interesting. So what about your? So do you feel that like you know more because, say, for example, the CAD experience or the non-game development that you're bringing? into your game development process. I mean, so for example, the reason I'm mentioning this is because one of the things that I think I learned was in the in the big telco IT infrastructure world, which is where I was doing a lot of my product management. Yes, mostly games, but I was working in the context of big IT projects. 
So there was a lot of very solid waterfall Prince 2 style methodology being used, which if you're an agile person makes you want to scream. <laughs> in but there were lots of really useful things about that, particularly if you're heading to a dead deadline and you know what you're building, blocking out the functions is quite a useful thing. And I think there's a lot of the, the sort of stability and the robustness and the consistency that you have to put into a telco grade platform that I think has helped me with my planning and the approach I take when I look at games. Did you find anything similar? Um, we came across um, Agile and uh, Scrum and uh, XP, all that sort of programming styles, a way of doing things. Yeah. And we they talked about Waterfall and uh, so on. Mm. And I remember we did Waterfall, you know, when I first started, it was always done that way. Yeah. And then they talked about the stages overlapping. And I remember thinking, yeah. how does that work? How can you overlap <laughs> stages? That doesn't. Yeah, hey. yeah. Uh, but now we do, well, we, we were doing uh, sprints, I think, but now we're doing Kanban. Um, okay, but less yeah, about, I like Kanban. It's less about sprints, but more about um, planning what you're going to do and then getting on with it. And this idea yeah. of doing it in a sort of fixed slices and so on. Yeah, I mean, all that came in, and I saw the the benefit of it, and I saw that um, nobody does it quite the same way. Nobody quite. I mean, I worked for a, a finance company, um, and uh, they were absolutely brilliant at doing it, and yeah. everything was organised, everything was very well set up, and so on. I just couldn't believe how well it was so working. It's a shame I hated finance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just, oh, I, don't know, I just found it boring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that the whole point of this at the end of the day? That you know, yes, we can learn different skill sets. I mean, I've worked in the pensions industry when before I got into games. I worked with um recipe management at my very first job. Um, but I've always found myself moving and moving and and, and basically staying inside the game space. Mm. And and there's something even when I was working at NVIDIA. It, my passion was as much as I love trying to push people to think about 3D on a mobile device, which is what my job was at the time. Um, my passion has always been about creating marvelous game experiences. And I think you, you highlighted it really well, which is it's not, it doesn't matter what role you've got in the big array of cogs. Yep. What matters is that you're part of a process to deliver something which is, ephemeral the, yeah. the idea of a game there's something that we engage yeah. with we play yeah. a medium that means something to us yeah because I, I, I join in with friends who play the game and we play it together and um i joined in and we were all over the world you know there was a guy in austin there was a guy in australia and i'm thinking wow <laughs> and i'm sitting on a ship in a turret and i'm thinking <laughs> this is just so weird and unreal and strange and and so on and uh yeah I, I do play it on my own quite a bit but i've also played it with friends and it's just that experience that you don't get anything else or anywhere else i mean with the, when i was doing the cad stuff i loved the fact i could try and mock up a room run this yeah. generation within a few minutes bang you've got this amazing picture and we were doing um vr at mm. the cad company they were experimenting with it can we use this can we give a customer a headset and they get to see their kitchen by wandering mm. around. And it, it, it sort of looked interesting, 
but it never really quite took off. There were lots of people experimenting with it, but nobody really, yeah. I mean, it was like trying to find a solution to something, or trying to find a, a product for this solution. Yeah. And they also had augmented reality, which is even funnier, because you put on these glasses and you can see on imposed on top of things uh, something extra. And again, they were thinking, can we use this to say, you can see your new gas cooker here or something. Yeah. And it, it was that sort of thing. And it, it was fun doing it. I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, I was, I was there for four years. Mm. And the only reason why I left is someone said to me, oh, um, you were a games developer. Why don't you go work on Star Citizen? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I looked into it and got interviewed and they eventually said yes. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm back in again. That'll do nicely. Sorry? That'll do nice. uh, yeah, that'll do nicely, I said. Yeah. yeah, and I'm back. <laughs> Except this time oh, it was tools, not audio. Yes, but again, you know, this is, again, the point. It's like, as you said before, I think if you're – there's a combination between experience and understanding how yeah. to do the job yeah. and i think it sounds like you know the different environments are more about your mo again tell me if I'm wrong but i feel like it's more about your motivation to to engage and kind of lose yourself in the code so yeah. essentially it's so much easier if you're passionate about the project's output yes even yeah. if even if the specifics aren't that yeah there was a medical company that I joined for about a year mm. and a bit that um, I would have liked to have stayed because mm. it, it felt like a job that was helping people. Yes, um, I can see that. Because it was involved with um, x-ray scalpel. Um, oh, okay. It could yeah. actually do brain surgery. Um, wow. And I was thinking, great. Uh, yeah, there was a great bit from this. Uh, this is a, a moment. This is a guy's hospital. We had yeah. our equipment set up. This is a mixture of hardware and software, this project. And it was all set up. And we were leaving this room with the, the x-ray machine and this dirty great door, thick lead lined, was closing. And I'm thinking, uh, it's James Bond. It's yeah, exactly. <laughs> this door closing behind us. And we watched this machine slowly rotated round, zapping this um, dummy head. I'm thinking, that's amazing. It's that, it was just fun. Yeah. But again, like I say, I mean, I, I found I could even work in pensions, even if it's the most boring thing in the world. I could find something to enjoy, but there's nothing like doing something which you, you know, you cut me, I bleed games. And I, I, I think that's kind of like, sounds like that's in your veins too. Yeah, I, I, even though when I started, there was no such thing as games. It was uh, text-based games. Um, yes. But I mean, I worked at EMI when, it, when they're in the heyday and uh, they had this medical um, desk and it had this rollerball and it had um a black and white screen and someone yeah. had written luna and lambda for it of course they had <laughs> i always a... thought you were gonna go for missile command that would no, have been no. my choice uh <laughs> i did work in a military project but i can't tell you yeah. any more about it but no no yeah, yeah, yeah it, it wasn't quite anything like that but um they, they had this medical desk as i said it was just so funny that they that it was meant for doing mri scans and so on but um someone wrote a lunar lander for it. Of course they did. It's... Of course they did. Because what do we want to do? We want to play. Play games. <laughs> Pete, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to get hold of you or find you, what, what do you have a social media handle of choice? Uh, it's usually iMecon um, or Imicon. Yeah. Imicon, no problem at all. Thank you very much for that. And uh, obviously, you know, thank you very much for taking the time out. Uh, mm -hmm. So this, uh, you know, has been your Game Dev London podcast. I've been Oscar Hart. We've had the uh, Pete Godwin with us. And uh, we will thank you very much for participating in this conversation where I think what we've said is 
you know, whether you're coming as a coder or a product owner or whatever else, it's the passion that we have for games that really drives us in all these things. And the fact that we can learn and gain experience and share that experience and help drive these projects forward is super important. So thank you very much for participating. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, share, like, subscribe, all of the usual extra bits and pieces. And obviously, if you didn't, tell us so we can make it better. So, oh, and of course, don't forget, you can also go to the Game Development Podcast um, Discord group, which will be in all the links. And with that, without further ado, thank you very much for listening. Bye, guys.